Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the criminal trial stemming from the tragic death of Ahmad Arbery, a 25-year-old black man who was pursued by three white men, Travis and Greg McMichael and William Roddy Bryan, and was eventually shot to death by one of those men, Travis McMichael. With verdicts of guilty rendered against the three defendants, we continue our complete coverage of the trial from gavel to gavel. On today's episode, we examine the opening statement of Kevin Goff in his defense of William Roddy Bryan. While attorneys for Travis and Greg McMichael gave their openings in the customary slot after the prosecution's opening, according to Georgia law, the defense has the option to present their opening statement after the state rests its case, and Goff availed himself of this option. We will begin this presentation right after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Kevin Goff's decision to present his opening statement after the prosecution rests its case seems motivated by a desire to differentiate his client, William Roddy Bryan, from Travis and Greg McMichael. And Brian's actions on February 23, 2020 were significantly different from his co-defendants. But as we examine and sometimes critique Goff's assertions to the jury of what he believes the evidence shows with respect to his client, we will also explore other possible assertions that may have helped Mr. Brian's case that Goff did not make. Goff launches into his narrative of the day that Ahmaud Arbery was killed and begins by establishing the point of view that will guide his presentation. I'm going to begin from Roddy Bryan's perspective. Um, Roddy Bryan, on February 23, 2020, is working on his porch, front porch, minding his own business. There's certainly no evidence that he's communicating with anybody else. There's no evidence that he's listening to any police scanners. Uh, there's nothing to suggest that he's participating in anything other than what it looks like. Repairing his, the front porch to his house. And at some point in this process, the evidence shows, and you can see the, how big the yard is, and it goes off to the side, and you can see a tree in his front yard that's providing a lot of shade at, at, at this point in time. Mr. Bryant catches out of the corner of his eye something that's different. And as he moves to get a better view, of course, he sees Mr. Arbery, and then he sees a truck catching up to Mr. Arbery. And there are words exchanged. Mr. Arbery, to me, this is important. The evidence does not show that Mr. Arbery has reached out to Mr. Bryan. You know, there's been a lot of talk about driveway decisions. There's been a lot of talk about assuming the worst in people point is that as Mr. Arbery is running up to and past Mr. Bryan's home, there's nothing menacing here. There's nothing dangerous here. 
Mr. Arbery is the one who's coming up the street. Mr. Bryant's listening to music and obviously oblivious to what's going on that morning. Mr. Bryant has the opportunity before Mr. Arbery has the opportunity before Mr. Bryant even understands what's going on to, to say and speak out, help, call 911. There's crazy people after me. That doesn't happen. What Mr. Bryant sees from his front porch is an encounter that's, I believe, caught on the other Night Owl video. Mr. Bryan hasn't assumed, the evidence would suggest that Mr. Bryan hasn't assumed the worst about anyone. That Mr. Arbery, for whatever reason, has assumed the worst about Mr. Bryan. Because if he's in distress, if he, in fact, is feeling threatened, he has the opportunity to reach out to Mr. Bryan. The evidence would suggest, and you saw the drone thing yesterday, which for all its limitations, shows you it's a fairly big neighborhood. There's a lot of houses on this Sunday afternoon. There's no evidence that Mr. Arbery ever reached out to help, for help, either to Mr. Bryan or anyone else in that neighborhood. But from Mr. Bryan's perspective, when he sees Mr. Arbery come by, he sees this truck, and I believe the truck is visible in this video, um, he's responding to what he's seeing. And what he's seeing is someone who's not asking for assistance and not asking for help. Now, I'm looking at it from the perspective of Roddy Bryan. Roddy Bryan, the evidence shows, knows the people who run by his house because he sees them. Four or five of them. But the evidence shows that he's never seen Mr. Arbery before. Now, to be fair, it's a big neighborhood. And intuitively, the evidence would suggest Mr. Bryan knows the difference between running to something and running from something. But in this case, there's really no mystery. Uh, but when Arbery passes Mr. Bryan's house, with all due respect, we know why. This early section of Kevin Goff's opening seems to be aimed at justifying William Bryan's decision to pursue Ahmad Arbery based on common sense. However, Goff's introduction of Bryan's defense appears to be without a legal theory that answers the charges of false imprisonment, aggravated assault with a vehicle, and the felony murder counts derived from those two underlying felonies. Unlike Travis and Greg McMichael, who assert that they were seeking to conduct a lawful citizen's arrest, Goff makes no such assertion on behalf of William Bryan. The next section of Goff's opening does appear to address the charges of assault with a firearm, felony murder stemming from such an assault, as well as malice murder. It's been suggested that Mr. Bryan is something other than who he is, and partly that's based on the words that Mr. Bryan himself uses because he's not always the most artful. But I would submit to you that the videos don't lie. It doesn't matter whether Mr. Bryan said he was walking on one day or running the next. We can see from the Night Owl video that Mr. Bryan, I think as the police officer has acknowledged, is walking into his garage, walking into his house. He's not running. And he does that. He does so without a weapon. He's got a hammer on the front porch. He leaves the hammer behind. He walks into his house calmly and he retrieves his keys. 
the evidence shows that Mr. Bryan, in fact, had a rifle in his house on the day of the shooting. Mr. Bryan does not retrieve his rifle. He does not get his rifle. The evidence is that Mr. Bryan does not even possess a handgun, but he does possess a rifle. He leaves it. Nor does he go in the kitchen. He's not grabbing a butcher knife. He's not going in the garage. He's not picking up a machete. He walks out to his car with a cell phone and his keys. And that speaks volumes as to the intentions of Mr. Bryan on the day in question. What does the evidence show? How hard can it be? Where is the evidence of, of someone who is evading and eluding who cannot go off-road? Is there any reason, does the evidence suggest that Mr. Arbery could not have walked off of the road onto a neighbor's lawn, onto Mr. Bryan's front lawn, and cried out for help? Is there evidence that he couldn't have stood behind a tree or so much as a mailbox? Does the evidence suggest that Mr. Bryan ever did or was even prepared to leave the path of the road, to leave the road? Is there any evidence that anyone did that or was prepared to do it that day? There's no evidence from Roddy Bryan's truck's computer system. Where is the physical evidence of Mr. Bryan driving aggressively? Where are the tire tracks, the brake marks, or the skid marks for all the times that Mr. Bryan has supposedly stopped short or changed direction without destroying any landscaping or mailboxes? Where is the evidence on the roadway itself of any aggressive driver? Now, there's been testimony. Mr. Bryan's never denied that he attempted to block the path of travel of Mr. Arbery. That's never been denied. But the manner in which that's done, where is the evidence that that's done in an aggressive manner? It's been suggested that Mr. Bryan tried to run over Ahmad Arbery as he comes back in front of his driveway. Now, when we last see Mr. Bryan's truck in the Night Owl video, it's already at the end of the driveway, sticking somewhat out in the street far enough that he can see around the bushes that would otherwise obstruct his view. How is Mr. Bryan going to accelerate from a stop when he's already in that road? And he's going to jump out there and try and hit Mr. Arbery. But we know the physical evidence is inconsistent because Mr. Bryan has to stop his vehicle before he completely leaves the road. He has to stop his vehicle so he doesn't go down in that ditch and hit the front of his car to the far side of it and go through it and pull back up. Where is the physical evidence to suggest that Mr. Bryan did anything more than what he said creep out of his driveway to try and cut off Mr. Arbery? The physical evidence is inconsistent with the kind of aggressive driving implied in this case. No witness will testify that they saw Roddy Bryan driving aggressively or recklessly no neighbors will testify to that because it didn't happen. We have no videos of aggressive driving. Certainly not Mr. Bryan's video where he's moving at two miles to three miles an hour. We have a neighborhood chock full of security cameras, but there is not evidence from any of those cameras showing any aggressive driving on the part of Mr. Bryan. Travis McMichael uh, is going to testify that he observed not Roddy Bryan attempting to run over Ahmad Arbery, that would be a crime. What Travis McMichael has observed 
consistent with the testimony, the statements made by Roddy Bryant at the scene, moments after the shooting, later that night, and subsequently with the GBI, consistent with those statements, that Travis McMichael saw Mr. Arbery acting aggressively, trying to get into the vehicle of Roddy Bryant. Now, that is an important consideration. It may be more important in one way for other defendants in this case. But in terms of Mr. Bryan, it helps inform why Mr. Bryan is engaging in the behavior that he does. To understand the context behind the words that Mr. Bryan has used in these interviews with law enforcement. The evidence is that when Mr. Arbery tried to get in his truck, at least the time that Mr. Bryan was aware of it, that that scared Mr. Bryan. He pulled up fast, the fastest he's gone during this encounter, putting distance between himself and, and Mr. Arbery. Because it's dawned for the first time on Mr. Bryan that this situation is more fraught with peril than he might have realized standing on his front porch. That's important because when you see the video, it helps inform why he's doing the things he's doing. And when he says that he's keeping a distance from Mr. Arbery in everything that follows, it makes sense. And it will inform your judgment at the end of this case. While Kevin Goff's statements above assert relatively benign intent by his client, William Bryan, on their face, they seem to acknowledge that Bryan tried to falsely imprison Ahmaud Arbery by seeking to confine, or in his words, block him without legal authority. And so, even if the jury were to accept that Mr. Arbery was trying to get into Mr. Bryan's vehicle, the jury would also be instructed that as a victim of false imprisonment, Mr. Arbery's actions could be considered to be availing himself of his right to self-defense. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Much of the balance of Goff's opening statement focuses on his client's cooperation with law enforcement as evidence of his beneficent motives. And in a moment, we will play much of the balance of Goff's opening with some light editing for concision and without further interruption. But before we do that, it is worth noting a key assertion that Goff does not make. In his questioning of GBI agent Richard Dial, Goff suggested that his client abandoned his pursuit of Ahmad Arbery and became a witness during the final moments before Travis McMichael shot Mr. Arbery. However, he does not follow that line of thought through in his opening with what might be a legally exculpatory assertion of what the evidence will show in this case. In other words, Kevin Goff might acknowledge in his opening that even if the jury finds that William Bryan committed the felonies of false imprisonment and aggravated assault with a motor vehicle, he should not be found guilty of felony murder. 
Bakoff might further offer that because such a charge requires that the felony committed cause the death of another human being, irrespective of malice, and because the evidence will show that Brian was neither assaulting or falsely imprisoning Ahmad Arbery at the time of his death, neither of those felonies were the legal cause of Mr. Arbery's death. But Kevin Goff does not make this assertion in the balance of his opening argument. Instead, he offers the following. Now, there is a key piece of evidence in this case, obviously, the, the now famous video. And, and relax, I am not going to replay the video yet again. We did that just yesterday afternoon. I'm not going to do it again. But the evidence in, in that video uh, is consistent from the, with what, from the perspective of Roddy Bryan, is not conspiracy. It's chaos. Officer Minshew gave Mr. Bryan an out, gave Mr. Bryan an obvious opportunity to minimize his involvement. So you're just a passerby. What does Mr. Roddy Bryan say? Oh yeah, let me go home. No, he says not exactly. Because he doesn't know what he is. And he's honest enough with the police officer to convey that. Mr. Bryan says on February 23rd that he acted instinctively. The evidence shows that he was candid, that he can't articulate exactly why he did what he did, other than his general awareness of what was going on in the neighborhood, what had happened to him and his family, and what he sees that day. And the police officer, Officer Minshew, is talking to him right there on the video, says, well, why'd you take it? Because I thought Mr. Arbery was going to get away, and I wanted to document it for the police. That's not something that was created by lawyers months later. That's something Mr. Bryan says that day. It was suggested earlier that Mr. Bryan wished that he hit Mr. Arbery. And while you can look at those words on a sheet of paper and you can see them, when you see Mr. Bryan in the interview room saying those words, the evidence will show that Mr. Arbery didn't have any intent to strike Mr. Arbery. That after the fact, sitting there with the police officer, looking back, you know, hindsight sometimes 2020, that if he had hit Mr. Arbery and stopped him, that he might have saved his life. And when you see his demeanor and you put the words to it, the evidence will show that Mr. Bryan did not intend to harm Mr. Arbery, never intended to harm Mr. Arbery, that he regretted Mr. Arbery being injured. And looking back, he wished he had done more or done something better or different so that Mr. Arbery would not have been shot. And again, the context is the key. The evidence is that Mr. Bryan, or will be that Mr. Bryan did not call 911. And maybe he should have. But we believe the evidence shows under the circumstances that he could reasonably assume that someone else did. Maybe he should have stayed on his front porch. It's been suggested that Mr. Bryan acknowledging that his life would be so much easier if he had stayed on his front porch that somehow that is a consciousness or acknowledgement of guilt. I think when you look at those words in context, you can see that they are anything but.
The evidence will show that the key evidence in this case, the video that Mr. Bryan took on the day in question, that Mr. Bryan is the reason we had that evidence because for whatever reason he turned around and went back. It was Mr. Bryan who produced not just the video because if he was trying to minimize his involvement in this case, that cell phone could have wound up in the marsh long before anybody even realized it mattered. That didn't happen. The evidence is it's Mr. Bryan who alerts everyone to its presence. Even then, what's the second most important piece of evidence in this case after the video that Mr. Bryan makes? I would respectfully submit to you that it's the night owl video of the truck passing in front of his house with Mr. Arbery. Again, that's Mr. Bryan producing the evidence. Matter of fact, I think the evidence shows or will show that the police, the Glen County Police Department, somehow in canvassing the neighborhood, missed his house, probably because he wasn't home. Nobody knew it was there. The evidence doesn't show Mr. Bryan attempting to delete anything from his cell phone. We've had all these forensic people from multiple police departments looking at this thing over and over. Likewise with the Night Owl video. It's Mr. Bryan who brings these police officers to his house where he lives, invites them in, and they can't get the video. But that's okay. No, you can come back later. I don't need my lawyer here. You can come back. Whatever you need, you can have it. It's Mr. Bryan that is responsible for that evidence being before you in this case. But that supposedly is evidence that Mr. Bryan is trying to conceal something or hide something or minimize his role in this case. And ultimately, you're going to have to decide what the truth is. It wasn't some slick lawyer on the side of the road on February 23rd advising Mr. Bryan. You can see who's on the side of the road. It's in all these body cams. There's no slick lawyer counseling Mr. Bryan, unlike perhaps others. There's no evidence that Mr. Bryan has a lawyer. There's no evidence of him calling any lawyers. If he called anybody, you know about it because they've got his phone. It was Mr. Bryan on his own with his 12th grade, whatever it is, education, who's making the decisions out there for the truth to come out and for the truth to be known. And you hear it in his voice on that day on the side of the road. He doesn't know anything about the law. He just has a gut reaction to try and do the right thing. And you hear that. It's not, he didn't, there's no complicated legal strategy. Mr. Bryan made the decision to cooperate with law enforcement in an instant on the side of the road that day, never looked back and continued to cooperate with law enforcement all the way to today. It's Mr. Bryan who invites the police in his truck. Officer Minshew sits with him in his truck and looks at the evidence for the first time. He's inviting people to his house. He's given them his truck over and over again because he's trying to hide something. Now, on February 23rd, Roddy Bryan put his fate in the hands of the Glen County Police Department. He put his trust in law enforcement officers that he did not even know. He put his trust in our government to do the right thing. That's what the evidence shows. 
And now he finds himself here before you, <clears throat> and he's placing his fate in your hands. And if the evidence is as we expect it to be, we're going to come back and ask you to return a verdict of not guilty. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery. Join us on our next episode as we examine witness testimony presented by the defense in the trial. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Our consulting producer is Paul Butler. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Killing of Ahmaud Arbery.